Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Ranting at you in the wee hours of July 29th, 2023. As always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And on this rant, we're going to have some things to say about Israeli President Isaac Herzog's address to a joint session of Congress last week and the political to-do about it. Happily, it was boycotted by five members of the so-called squad of progressive Democrats. And it is interesting that this time Herzog himself was sent rather than the top dog, arch-reactionary prime minister, Bibi Netanyahu, because he, Herzog, is a holdover from the old so-called moderate Labor Party establishment in Israel, which has been in decline for the past 20 years, and Bibi, of the now radicalized and far-right Likud, is politically inconvenient due to the political crisis in Israel at this moment, with mass protests against his controversial legislative package that would essentially gut the power of the judiciary and create a de facto dictatorship led by Israel's far right. The first bill in the package was passed on July 24th, despite massive protests in Israel. And this portends a constitutional crisis because this new law curtails the power of the Supreme Court to strike down legislation. So, if the Supreme Court rules to strike down this legislation, does it have the power to do so? There could be a battle of wills between the executive and judiciary in Israel in the coming weeks. This all comes amid now open annexationist land grabs on the occupied West Bank and an attendant escalation of violence and deadly repression to levels not seen in many years. And there are even calls entering mainstream discourse in the United States for a cutoff of U.S. aid to Israel, or at least a cutoff of military aid, including by Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times on July 22nd in a column entitled, With Israel, It's Time to Start Discussing the Unmentionable, quote-unquote. So, it seems the unmentionable is becoming mentionable, quite unprecedented, and I dare say, despite certain caveats, which we'll get to, quite hopeful. So, all this did make a media splash. The Israel-Palestine conflict does continue to get consistent mainstream coverage, even if it has been pushed to a second tier by Ukraine. We here on the counter-vortex make it a priority to discuss under-reported conflicts, which is why we continue to have a limited audience. And in fact, there is a little-noted angle to the current to-do around Israel, 
that intersects with a very underreported conflict elsewhere in the MENA region, Middle East, North Africa, which we will also be looking at. But first, let's examine the politics of what is in the headlines. First, we should note the limitations of both the protests in Israel as persistent and massive and militant as they have been, and of the stateside calls for an aid cutoff. At the protests, there have, discouragingly, been seas of Israeli flags, perhaps for obvious tactical reasons, but it is the flag, after all, of an apartheid state and an illegal occupying power, which makes it inherently problematic. But things have to start somewhere. The protests are generally still very encouraging. And especially the pledge by military reservists not to serve if this legislation moves ahead. Which recalls the earlier movement of so-called refuse Nicks, who resisted military service to protest the occupation. And in any case, there is an anti-apartheid block at the protests, as it calls itself, that is making the connection to the occupation and double-standard democracy within the Green Line, and even waving the Palestinian flag at the protests in defiance of an official ban on its public display by the current administration. The Palestinian flag, in conscious descent from the seas of Israeli flags, this block is tolerated, at least, by the broad mass of the protesters and the protest leadership, and my Israeli friends estimate it constitutes some 10% of the overall protest movement. Again, a start. And as for the calls for an aid cutoff, they are also couched in the most depressingly cautious of terms, noting that Israel is already a rich nation and doesn't really need our aid, and actually portraying it as a win for Israel, a boost to its arms industry, since it will be less reliant on the U.S., and removing a potential lever of pressure over Israel. Not that that lever is ever used. But again, things have to start somewhere, I suppose. And there are those who are pushing the debate, as Herzog made clear in his comments before Congress, July 19th, in which he said, quote, Criticism of Israel must not cross the line into the negation of the state of Israel's right to exist. End quote. Well, it is time for progressive voices to cross that line. Israel should not exist as currently constituted i.e. as a Jewish state. And this is not merely a problem of the illegal occupation of the West Bank and ongoing siege of Gaza. The widely unacknowledged fact is that Israel has been building apartheid, both 
sides of the Green Line. Apartheid is inherent to the very architecture of the settlement infrastructure on the West Bank, with suburban-style settlement blocks on the hilltops lording it over the Palestinian population in the villages below, whose farmlands are being expropriated and encroached upon. But within Israel, Jews are officially and institutionally favored over the Palestinian Arabs, who constitute some 20% of the population, in terms of access to land, housing, and employment. The body that controls public lands in Israel and distributes them for settlement and development is the Jewish National Fund, created in 1901 at the Fifth Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland, and constitutionally required to favor Jews. Arabs are even today having their lands expropriated for explicitly Jewish towns within the Green Line, especially in the ongoing cleansing of Bedouin villages in the Negev Desert in the south. Place names are being Judaized to erase the Arab past in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. The demand that the Palestinian leadership officially recognize Israel as a Jewish state, quote-unquote, <coughs> is mirrored in proposals by the ruling coalition to officially make Israel Jewish first, quote-unquote, and democratic second. They're talking about this openly now, as well as proposals to, for instance, change the citizenship law mandating fealty to a Jewish state. What does that say to the fifth of the population that isn't Jewish? The existing citizenship law already has apartheid elements where marriage rights are concerned, with Palestinians from the occupied territory who are married to Palestinians of Israeli citizenship, those from west of the Green Line, barred themselves from receiving Israeli citizenship or residency unlike nationals of any other country. And new provisions are being pushed for citizenship revocation of perceived disloyal elements. As with the original South African apartheid, there are criminal penalties for dissent against this system. For instance, advocacy of BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel. Arabs by no means have equal rights in Israel. An inherently Jewish state cannot be anything other than ethno-supremacist. I oppose moves to make my own country, the United States of America, an officially Anglo or Christian state, and for the same reason I oppose the notion of a Jewish state. It is time for Israel to join the 20th century, now that we're in the 21st, and become a secular state with equal rights for all its citizens. And that means ceasing to be Israel, if Israel is taken to mean the Jewish state. Now, obviously, I oppose 
the rejectionist drive them into the sea talk by the most intransigent elements on the Palestinian side. I don't think all anti-Zionism or post-Zionism should be conflated with this extremist position. But it should also be pointed out that the only slightly more euphemistic talk of transfer, quote, unquote, of the Palestinian population into Jordan, heard more and more from official voices on the Israeli side, is equally extremist. And opposing one, without opposing the other, betrays the moral bankruptcy of one's position. So now we come to the depressing news that squad member Representative Pramila Jayapal of Washington State, chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, apologized for calling Israel a racist state. Quote, I offer my apologies to those who I have hurt with my words, Jayapal said in a statement on July 16th. The day before, at Netroots Nation, a progressive event in Chicago, Jayapal had addressed a group of Palestinian solidarity activists and said, quote, As someone that's been in the streets and has participated in a lot of demonstrations, I want you to know that we have been fighting to make it clear that Israel is a racist state, end quote. And this is flashing me back to the whole to-do over the comments by fellow squad member, Representative Elon Omar of Minnesota, four years ago. And as we noted in our podcast about the affair of March 17, 2019, entitled Elon Omar, Anti-Semitism and Propaganda, this whole make-her-apologize ritual is utterly pathological even from the standpoint of fighting anti-Semitism. It's totally counterproductive because it just plays right into all the anti-Semitic stereotypes about Jews. We control the media and politicians. We lord it over everyone else, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you can criticize what she said without the ritual humiliation of wresting an apology from her. And in fact, I did criticize what she said, because Omar's comment posed the problem of U.S. support for Israel in terms of, quote, allegiance to a foreign country, unquote, the nationalist and xenophobic language of our enemies. And in fact, it did smack of precisely those anti-Semitic stereotypes about Jews, dual loyalty and all that. I don't think she was being consciously malicious. I think she was just echoing a trope that is unfortunately in widespread circulation. But it was still worthy of criticism, and I criticized it. But Jayapal, in contrast, did not say anything inappropriate. What she said was absolutely correct. Israel is a racist state to its very foundations. Now, you can argue that all nation-states are racist to one degree or another, 
quite obviously including the one I live in, the United States of America. But Israel really is unique, at least among the so-called democracies, in being officially, as a matter of fundamental doctrine, in the 21st century, a settler state and colonialist enterprise. So no, Jayapal should not have apologized for her comment, and the whole intellectual and political atmosphere is more obfuscated and dangerous thanks to her having done so. She had nothing to apologize for. And meanwhile, let's see what they're saying on the other side of the aisle. <clears throat> Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, notoriously seeking the Republican presidential nomination, just reiterated his assertion that the West Bank is not occupied, saying that Israel should be able to continue to build settlements on the territory without protest from the United States. Speaking to a Christians United for Israel, Kufi confab in D.C. on July 17th, DeSantis boasted of his efforts to crack down on boycott and divestment advocacy, adding, quote, Judea and Samaria are not occupied territory, unquote, referring to the West Bank territories by their biblical names, as is official parlance under the current Israeli administration, and implicitly annexationist. He added that Israelis, quote, have the strongest claim of right to the West Bank. They have every right to have strong communities in those areas, end quote. So, blatantly backing up illegal settlement expansion and the increasingly blatant and, of course, thoroughly illegal annexationist agenda. It is DeSantis who should be forced to apologize for voicing defiance of the fundamental precepts of international law. But don't hold your breath for that one. All right, now let's turn to what the United Nations international law experts have to say on this question. A press release from the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, July 26th, from the text, The international community must take steps to prevent Israel's annexation of the occupied Palestinian territory or risk being seen as accepting the Israeli government's systematic violation of international law, UN experts said today. Quote, Israel's continuous annexation of portions of the occupied Palestinian territory, now focusing on large swaths of the West Bank after unlawfully annexing East Jerusalem, suggests that a concrete effort may be underway to annex the entire occupied Palestinian territory in violation of international law, the experts said. While the Israeli settlers in occupied Palestinian territory enjoy civil and political rights, Palestinians are subject to military rule. Quote, the consolidation of an apartheid regime is an unavoidable consequence of such a system, the experts added. 
the large majority of member states of the UN unequivocally condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine and its annexation of Ukraine's eastern parts as an act of aggression, and they imposed sanctions on Russia to encourage a cessation of this violation of international law. By contrast, Israel's annexation of the occupied Palestinian territory is obfuscated by political rhetoric, debates, and negotiations, which ultimately rest on double standards, the experts said. This show of a la carte enforcement of international law undermines the foundations of the UN Charter and the promise of universality of international human rights 75 years after the proclamation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, end quote. Once again, from a July 26th press release from the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. Take that, Ron DeSantis. Okay, and now we turn to how the question of Palestine, that of a colonized and occupied Arab people, touches on that of another, and unfortunately much lesser known, colonized and occupied Arab people across North Africa, the Sahrawi Arabs of Western Sahara, and the parallels between the situations are striking. In Western Sahara, we have a colonized Arab people waging a multi-generational resistance against a Western-backed government that occupies their land in defiance of UN resolutions. In this case, Morocco, which seized the territory when Spain withdrew from what had previously been the colony of Spanish Sahara upon the death of Francisco Franco in 1975. Initially, Morocco held the north while Mauritania took the south, but in 1980, Mauritania pulled out and Morocco's King Hassan II quickly annexed their portion of the territory. There has been a pro-independence guerrilla struggle, although a ceasefire has been in place for the past generation, now in danger of breaking down, as we shall see, and there have been periodic intifadas. Thousands have languished in refugee camps since the occupation began. The occupying power has divided the territory with a security wall to contain the resistance and protect settlements. Unemployment and human rights abuses have long been rife. Does this sound familiar? It should. So there is a perfect, if perverse, poetry in this news item that you may have missed. On July 17th, Israel announced that it has formally recognized Moroccan sovereignty over the disputed territory, as media accounts put it, of Western Sahara. The United States in 2021 became the first nation to recognize Morocco's claim to the territory and open quid pro quo for Moroccan recognition of Israel. 
as part of the Trump administration's so-called Abraham Accords, much hyped as a peace agreement, Israeli recognition of Morocco's claim was promised at that time. However, much of the territory is controlled by the Polisario Front independence movement of the Sahrawi Arab people. Some 45 countries around the world recognize Polisario's declared Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, or Sadr. The U.S. and Israel are alone in recognizing Rabat's rule over the territory. The United Nations continues to officially designate Western Sahara a non-self-governing territory. Nonetheless, Israeli recognition is but the most recent in a string of Moroccan diplomatic gains. Some 28 countries have opened consulates in the Western Saharan cities of Dakla or Layoun, as Israel now says it will. In what Morocco boasts as tangible support for its rule of the territory, in March of last year, 2022, Spain, after years of deliberation, officially expressed its support for Morocco's autonomy plan for the territory, which is rejected by the Sadr. On the other hand, last September, the African court of Human and People's Rights, a body of the African Union, delivered a judgment concluding that Morocco's occupation of Western Sahara is a violation of the right to self-determination and independence. The case was brought on behalf of the Sadr in response to Morocco's ascension to the AU in 2017. In November 2020, Polisario declared an end to the ceasefire in the territory, which had been in place since 1991, after Morocco launched a military operation within the UN-patrolled buffer strip through the territory, although there hasn't been any significant fighting since then that I've been aware of. And little-known fact The so-called Arab Spring, or Arab Revolution, that began in early 2011, was actually presaged by a brief uprising in Western Sahara. Violence broke out in November 2010, when Moroccan soldiers and police attacked a protest camp that had been established to mark the 35th anniversary of the territory's annexation by Morocco outside the regional capital, Layoun. So the start of the Arab Revolution is usually marked from the self-immolation of street vendor Mohamed Bouazizi in Tunisia on December 17, 2020, in protest of police harassment. But this episode outside Layoun, Western Sahara, foreshadowed it, at least, just a few weeks earlier. Now, also, as with Palestine... It isn't a simple situation. The Sahrawi Arabs speak the Hassaniya dialect of Arabic and are culturally distinct from the Arabs of Morocco, who speak the Darija dialect or language, depending on your point of view. But there are other claimants to the territory. 
As we noted in our podcast on Western Sahara of August 21st, 2018, the Berber or Amazir people of Morocco and Western Sahara, who really do have the deepest roots in North Africa and the strongest claim to indigeneity, having been there before the arrival of the Arabs in the 7th century, are suspicious of the Sadr because of its Arab nationalist politics, while the Moroccan monarchy has actually been making some concessions to demands for Amazir cultural rights over the past decade or so, whereas Algeria, which is backing the Polisario Front, has been putting down the Amazir independence movement in the Kabylia region. So, once again, nation-states playing a divide-and-rule game that pits people on the ground against each other. And I just have to state that I am not urging uncritical support for the Polisario Front and Sadr any more than I am for Fatah and the Palestinian Authority or Hamas. But these complexities do not make the Moroccan occupation of Western Sahara any less illegal, or the Sahrawi Arabs any less entitled to self-determination. I'll point out that there are also peoples on the West Bank, other than the Palestinians and Israelis, such as the Bedouin, who consider themselves a subgroup of the Palestinians, but also with their own distinct identity, and the Samaritans, yes, those of the Bible, they are still around. And if I may venture into the utopian for just a moment, (laughs) as an anarchist, I would like to say that perhaps we should reconceive self-determination in terms of federated autonomous communities and dare to dream of a no-state solution for Palestine and Western Sahara. But at the moment, a one-state solution, a single secular state for all of historic Palestine, seems pretty utopian enough, unfortunately. And a final word in this regard. A big hail and farewell to Sinead O'Connor, also known as Shuhada Sadaqat, since her conversion to Islam a few years back. It emerges that Sinead got into a bit of a tangle back in 1997 with Itamar Ben-Gavir, Israel's current national security minister, who, as we have discussed before, is the most ugly, reactionary, hardline, and bellicose member of the administration, who was allowed to take his cabinet post despite having been convicted of inciting racism with slogans such as expel the Arab enemy, quote-unquote, back in 2007. He is also an extreme cultural conservative who has been outspoken against gay rights. Surprise, surprise. And uh, back in June 1997, Sinead was scheduled to sing in Jerusalem 
at a concert organized by Palestinian and Israeli women to promote the idea of the city as a shared capital for the two peoples. She canceled her appearance after receiving death threats from a Jewish supremacist group called the Ideological Front. One of the group's leaders at that time, a young Itamar Ben-Gavir, subsequently went on Israeli radio to openly gloat that Sinead had pulled out of the concert. And she responded in an open letter to Ben-Gavir, in which she chastised him, extensively quoted the Bible, and concluded, quote, How can there be peace anywhere on earth if there is not peace in Jerusalem? And I'll also note that in 2014, Sinead called off another concert in Israel proper in response to calls from the BDS movement, a very courageous move. She honored the boycott of Israel. I wish more pop stars were as smart, gutsy, and principled as Sinead O'Connor. Slan Awolia, Sinead. Have a safe trip home. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org, where everything I've been ranting about tonight is all blogged up, hyperlinked, and documented. Please support us on Patreon. We need your support to keep going. Throw us just a buck or two per weekly podcast. You know what? In one month, that'll be enough for me to get a latte at Starbucks. Just do it. Join the counter vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.